welcome to the Financial Findings Podcast, where financial research, policy, and practice meet. I am your host, Jonathan Ferguson. Our episodes contain interviews with researchers and discuss evidence-based strategies that policymakers and practitioners can implement to strengthen financial well-being for individuals at all stages of life. For this episode, we have an interview with Dr. Cliff Robb. Cliff is the chair for the Department of Consumer Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a professor in the School of Human Ecology. Dr. Robb studies consumer financial decision-making with an emphasis on financial knowledge and capability. He is interested in the financial decision-making of young adults in particular, with a focus on college student debt management and well-being. His research is widely published in a number of peer-reviewed journals. He holds a PhD from the University of Missouri, a master's from the University of Alabama, and a BA from the University of the South. Our discussion will center on his recent research project, Enhancing Trust in the Social Security Administration and E-Government Among People Targeted by Fraud. Thanks for joining us today, Cliff. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll dive into your research in just a minute. But one of the things I like to do to begin with on the podcast, first question for everyone, what has been a financial aha moment in your life? And that can be something that you learn from someone close to you, research, or something different. Yeah, I would say, you know, I feel like I was fairly fortunate when I was growing up, money wasn't kind of it wasn't mysterious in our household. It was really well discussed. And it was it was something that my parents, I think, did a good job of kind of like making sure we we had some understanding of the importance of money decisions and thinking about long-term financial planning. And I know that's not necessarily usual and it's not necessarily the norm in, in what we see. And so I think one of my big moments was that as, as I was working on my master's degree and so really getting into that graduate research work and really starting to explore more the way the economic system is designed in this country and the way financial education and financial literacy looked i was just really i think surprised and, and amazed at just like how few people really had access to certain um institutional channels and really understood the way things operate and the way the system is organized so i think that was really something that stood out to me is like, wow, we really need to be doing more work in this space to kind of help make um, either retirement planning more accessible to more people or make financial security more of a norm and make financial education something that helps people uh, in those daily life decisions, knowing that it is such a complex marketplace and seeing how that, you know, just over my lifetime, how much the marketplace shifted and was continuing to just put more and more risk onto individual consumers, right? More and more of the burden of doing things right is on individuals and and kind of consumers in our marketplace. And I thought that was really an interesting uh, thing to find out. Your aha moment was, you know, not just about your life, obviously, but also, you know, it speaks to a, a bigger issue about overall societal health. So I think that's really awesome. How did you get to this point here? Are you doing the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I was really unsure at the undergraduate level. So I did an undergraduate in psychology, uh, really liked things like uh, industrial organization psychology, really kind of understanding how people 
we're making decisions and, and thinking about, um, you know, what they, how people operated in not just the marketplace, but in everyday life. And so I was really looking at potentially going on for a graduate degree in psychology. And I did this, you know, wonderfully naively because I was, you know, I had no real training in the sense of what does it mean to pursue graduate study? I went to a small liberal arts college. So there really wasn't any like training up on like, this is how you get into grad programs. It was just, I just started applying. I took the, the psych GRE and I just started sending applications to various universities and was just summarily rejected from like one after the other. Cause it was just like, you don't just like get into PhD programs straight from undergraduate uh, necessarily in every discipline. So I found out that from a psych, that, that discipline was not so easy just to, without connections or, or some sense of like what to do to train for that pathway. Uh, so luckily I had a family friend who was uh, a faculty member in the consumer science department at the University of Alabama. So where I grew up um, and she just, you know, knew that I was looking at graduate programs and knew that I was uh, interested in pursuing a degree and asked whether I'd ever looked at kind of the master's in consumer economics kind of thing. So she's like, there's, there's psych there, there's, you know, behavior, there's economics, there's finances. And she thought it would just be a good fit. And so I did eventually apply to that program. And I really found it to be engaging and I loved the multidisciplinary nature of it. So while I liked my grounding in psychology, I also really liked getting into the economics and a little bit more of the sociology and kind of the mix of different um, ideas and concepts that come into play when you really think about how people make decisions. And from there, I did decide, because that was when I was at Alabama, the choice was take that master's and go into like some kind of you know, financial services degree pathway or some kind of data analytics public service job or continue on to a PhD. And I did decide that I was enjoying it enough that I wanted to do the research degree. So I did uh, University of Missouri in Columbia. I went there to get the PhD. And so that kind of, it all worked out really well, but it was, it, it was very kind of, it was a little haphazard, not, not a clear path right out of undergrad. Please tell us uh, what motivated you to complete this research and a little bit more about it. Initially, so about two years ago, through the RDRC, I was introduced to Steve Wendell, and he's a behavioral scientist. And he had ideas about ways in which we could kind of test, run tests on people and their understanding of whether messaging they're receiving is true or false and ways to kind of help people identify scam messaging, false emails, false text messages. What are the kind of cues to look for in those cases? And I thought that was a really interesting uh, sub area for analysis. It wasn't something I had a lot of experience in, but again, I was, I think broadly, I'm very interested in lots of things around how people make decisions. So this kind of fit within that framework for me of learning more about the decision process for consumers. And so we added to our team, Marty DeLima, who is also doing research on trust and consumer fraud in, in this vein of the RDRC. So for this last year, the three of us worked together to kind of run a new pilot where we were not only trying to determine how people are able to judge messages as fraudulent or true, but what are ways in which we can maybe help improve trust in government entities or businesses that are trying to reach 
people. So we know that one of the big penalties that comes from the current marketplace in the sense that there's so much out there that is not true, right? There's so, people get so many spam calls, they get spam texts, they get spam emails. There's so much of it that the concern on our end was that does that really start to erode trust in real messages? So that when an entity is actually trying to reach you, are we so gun shy because we've just been spammed so many times that we're not actually going to respond to that entity? And so when you look at something like the Social Security Administration, Sometimes they need to reach us and it's really important that they do, but we've seen so many fake Social Security Administration outreach to, you know, attempts that maybe we're just desensitized to it. So that was kind of the, the heart of this. I think what you mentioned there is probably true for a lot of us. I mean, if we just think about the spam calls that we get, even if they're from um, similar numbers that we're used to getting, I had this experience in my own life where I got a call just a few days ago. And I ignored it because I thought it was a spam call. Turns out it was actually someone I know and they changed their number. I just deleted Yeah, I don't touch call. an unknown number anymore, except unless I'm expecting a call and it's from the right region, right? It's like, oh yeah, I should be getting a call from somewhere around there today. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I'm not answering it. And that was a fairly insignificant issue in my life. This is something that is is very important to, to lots of people. So you touched on a, a lot there. Are there any specific uh, constraints or limitations you would identify with this research that are important to know? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it's there's definitely limitations to what we can say because the training situation is a, you know, it's an insulated environment, right? We're not really seeing people answer real spam emails. So we've created an environment in which they're given messages that they get to flag as true or false, but it is a, it's a, you know, a idealized environment. It's still very, very realistic the way it's been set up. So it's been designed really nicely. Like we have spoof websites, we have spoof emails, and these are designed off of actual scams. So like our scam emails look like real scam emails. Our scam websites look like real websites. But people know they're in a study. So that's, you know, there's always that conditional component there. And so it changes some of the dynamics. I also would say that we're limited to talk about how people respond to the medium by which we're reaching out to them. So it's limited to like, if we're talking about an email, we're really talking about, yes, people's responsive to email. We can't necessarily take that and then say, how would they respond to text or how would they respond to a phone call? So depending on which medium we do the outreach in, that's kind of where we're limited to talk about. We can't really say broadly, this cuts off scammers from all these different ways in which they might reach us. So I think those are maybe the two big limitations. That makes sense. But that said, obviously, you were able to, to conduct this research and, and find some things that are that are meaningful. So yeah, tell us a little bit about what your research found. So I think what's really nice that we identified in kind of in both the studies that Steve and I worked on, but in this study as well, is that it is possible through a fairly low cost intervention to help people be better at identifying fake or um, deceptive messaging. So there's, there's little things we can teach. There's, and again, like a five-minute training that kind of walks you through, here's the types of things to look for on a fake website. Here's the types of things you would look for in an email that would tell you this isn't really from who you think it is. And so by giving those little small tips and helping people identify these little rules of thumb, 
we can make a difference in people's ability to say, hey, that's not real or this is real. That's kind of the important takeaway. So the idea is we'd love to be able to, you know, what we're doing is we're sharing this with the Social Security Administration with the hope that they're able to then craft more effective tools that they can put on their website that they can provide to the public in terms of like, hey, how to spot bad messaging that's not really us. Here's here's like a legitimate way to identify real messaging or here's how we would reach out to you. Because the hope is, again, helping establish or at least maintain some trust in those real entities that are trying to do good things in the marketplace. Based on this research, like what are the implications? So what and now what? What's important to do based on these findings? Uh, I think some of the big takeaways are that we know, so we know that these very modest interventions can be impactful. What we don't know is whether there can be maybe a better version of uh, training for trustworthy messaging. So a lot of our training was geared towards identifying uh, deceptive messaging. And I think one thing we could learn a little bit more about is what if we were really targeting Here's the things to look for that hall that are hallmarks of quality or real messaging. And so oftentimes I think we saw that people were more successful identifying fakes than they were identifying the real stuff, right? So there's definitely lessons to be taken from each side because these are two different things while they're highly related, identifying a fake versus identifying something as real is those are two different tasks that are happening. And we found that people were much better at fraud identification than they were at necessarily like novel, this is real identification, because we asked kind of both types of things. Um, we also know that this is something that it's kind of like anything that we don't do a lot. Um, the skill set dulls, right? We need this to be something that's timely and it needs to be kind of at the point of concern. And this is what makes this really challenging is that we feel like how do you operationalize that in terms of applying this in the real world is a challenge because people are constantly getting attacked with spam spoof stuff. Um, so how often do they need to take like a short training or how do you, how do you have them access that? Like when is the right time to then go, okay, I need to take this kind of uh, dedicated training. And how does the Social Security Administration kind of get people into that mindset properly? So I think those are some of the real big challenges that still remain and, and some of the areas where we know that there's a lot more that we can learn. But there's definitely really encouraging things coming out of this, but also lots of work to be done on thinking about the kind of that operationalizing what we're learning from these studies. How do you actually get people to take these trainings would be a big question. Well, there's always a new way to be deceived or a new way to gather in information that's important that is relevant and legitimate. I would say, you know, another really interesting, interesting thing that came out of this research that I think is, is helpful for people to kind of know just in, in broad sense. Cause I think a lot of times people think about um, scams and spam and they think about susceptibility of maybe um, relatives of theirs who are maybe older. Uh, and I think that's a, pretty common misconception that's out there. Because when you really look at the literature, we see actually the greatest susceptibility among our youngest adults and our oldest adults. There's kind of like a, an experiential curve effect that goes on where we see like our middle-aged uh, adults kind of get enough experience where they're kind of 
savvy around identifying. And I do think there's probably a, a, a little bit of a cognitive decline piece that comes in for our older adults. So it really isn't that it's just the older Americans we need to be concerned with in terms of protections. It's it's everyone, but we see more susceptibility amongst the really young because they have less experience and the much older. And I think that could be due to kind of cognitive decline pieces. Um, so that was another thing that's coming out of these types of studies that we're seeing in the in the results as we as we text uh, test this further it's important to call that out that we all need to be aware of this and particular those two groups well this is great thanks so much for joining us on podcast and sharing all about this research um, if our listeners want to learn more about it how can they find more about this research and other things you have going on uh, the cfs website uh, does a good job of kind of reporting out these things. Our study was funded by the Social Security Administration through the uh, the RDRC grant that goes through the UW-Madison's Center for Financial Security. Those reports get, uh, at the end of each grant cycle, we we create formal reports. Those reports get filed with the Social, Social Security Administration, and those are available on the CFS website. They're av available on the Social Security Administration's website. We create um, multiple versions. So if you feel intimidated by a really long research report that's 30 something pages, just know that there's also like a one pager that talks about all the same things. So we put out abstracts, we put out briefs. So you can get in there and just read like, hey, you can go through and look at all the RDRC projects and read the one page briefs and you'll know a lot more about the types of things that we're doing without having to dig into these really lengthy detailed studies. If there's something you're really interested in, you can dig into that 30-page report that tells you a lot about what was actually done because we have that as well. But I think that's a really great place to start. I would start at the Center for Financial Security's website. Also look at Social Security Administration's uh, RDRC uh, work that they're doing because they are funding a lot of great research to learn more about how people engage with their services and what they can do to be you know, provide better uh, service to the American people. Thanks to Dr. Rob for visiting the Financial Findings Podcast. Please follow our podcast on your podcast app to remain updated on the latest work from the UW-Madison Retirement and Disability Research Center. You can also visit our center on the web at cfsrdrc.wisc.edu. There, you'll find our latest news, publications, and webinars. Until our next episode, let's all keep doing our best to support equity and financial security.